together, uh, Eddie, Mike, and myself. We went and took a we we uh, took a class together, and a class on the history of the assemblies of God, and um, and also some very boring stuff. Robert's Rules of Order. If you've ever been through classes for parliamentary procedure, they there's no way to make them really exciting. But uh, but I was very excited. Um, it's one of my favorite subjects. I have library with volumes and volumes of books about some of those people that we studied this weekend, people like Smith Wigglesworth and some of the people that are in the historical, um, uh, just some of the pioneers of uh, the Christian faith and the Pentecostal faith and people that were people of the Spirit. That's actually what the book is entitled. And uh, one thing I found very fascinating, um, there was a conference in the early 1800s and it was an evangelical conference, and it was most of the great evangelical people in the world. And what the word evangelical means is they had a strong desire to evangelize the world. And at that conference, they were really discouraged because the methods that they had used to evangelize the world were not very effective. And most everything that they did, I mean, there was a lot of prayer, there was a lot of planning, uh, there was a lot of raising of funds, but I believe, if I remember right, it said that uh, they they believed that they had reached 3.5 million people around the world. And they were very disappointed in that number. Was that the number? 3.5 million, wasn't it? And they were very disappointed, and they were, um, at this conference, they were seeking God, what do we need to do? And they just began pouring their hearts out before the Lord because they had a hunger to see God reach. I mean, how many know there's a lot more than 3.5 million people in the world? And they just wanted to be effective. And the conclusion they came to in the conference was, we need to go back and look at our history. We need to look back at the early church and we need to see what they were doing because clearly they were more effective than we are right now. And as they begin to look at the early church, they begin to notice something different about the way they were doing things compared to the early church. And the thing that they put their finger on was they were led by the Holy Spirit. They were led in everything by the Holy Spirit. And they just began to examine how were they so led by the Holy Spirit and they just began to try to figure out What is it about this Holy Spirit that equals winning lost souls? And so as they began to pour themselves out before the Lord and they began crying out, what is this early church doing? They began to, they began to try to formulate opinions on what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is this thing about Pentecost when the church started that God pours His Spirit upon the church? Why did Joe say, uh, I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh and you shall prophesy. You'll dream dreams. There'll be visions. Old and young alike will be dreaming and seeing visions. He said, I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh and you'll go to the ends of the earth. And something began to happen and, 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 and just the assemblies of God alone and we don't have the patent on the Holy Spirit. How many know that? I don't want to disappoint anybody that, that somebody doesn't have the patent. But just that group alone, are you ready for this? In a hundred years, 
They've reached 70 million converts. 70 million. And right now, the United States is a very, very, very small percentage of that. In fact, they said in the United States, people will hardly even know what an Assembly of God church is. They said, but all the nations of the world, that's where almost all the 70 million are. And it's because they started here and they began to cry out for the power of the Holy Spirit. And as they began to cry out for the Holy Spirit, God began to raise up people that were led by the Spirit. And they were more effective. And you just look in our community, and I challenge you to look at it. People that are led by the Spirit will go places that people who aren't will not go. They'll move when other people won't move. They'll be led by the Spirit in a service. They'll stand up. And I want to tell you something today as a pastor. If you feel the Spirit of the Lord is upon you and God wants to speak through you, speak it. You say, well, aren't you going to, are you going to, you know, be mad if I do it wrong? I'm not going to be mad. We're, we're here to help guide and lovingly direct. I'm not going to stand over the top of you and say you did it wrong. Why? Because I've made mistakes. But what God wants is the people that have a heart that is hungry for the Holy Spirit. A heart that is hungry to get out of the natural and get into the supernatural. They're tired of seeing the devastation that is around them. Tired of seeing the drug addiction. Tired of seeing the struggles. Tired of seeing the depression. Tired of seeing the enemy win. So people began to get hungry and say, we're not effective. And they, and they began to look and they began to say, why did God say, tarry you in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high? I'm going to endue you with supernatural power from on high to reach the world. And God, God wants to speak that in this church. Every word that was spoken on the floor this morning was about taking unusually unqualified people and filling them with the Holy Spirit and using them for His glory. If God can take an illiterate plumber, now whose name am I going to say? Smith Wigglesworth. One of my favorite people in the entire world that I've ever read about is Smith Wigglesworth. He was an illiterate plumber who couldn't speak in front of people. But God filled him with the Holy Spirit. And that man, I began to read all the places that he went in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have accompanying news articles of every nation that he went to, every city that he walked in. And I, and I began to read it and I began to look and I said, wow, this is a newspaper from this city, this city, this city. And I began to say to myself, how are those gifts not for today if that man's doing what he's doing? And I finally realized among myself and said, I cannot say any longer that those gifts do not happen. If that man did all the things that they said he did, if he laid on that, his hands on that many people, if he cast out that many demons, he must have the same power that Jesus had when he cast out demons and he healed sicknesses. And all God's looking for is some hungry people like him, like an illiterate plumber. God is looking for people that are hungry for the power of the Holy Spirit. So I began to look back and I began to look at the um, pioneers, the first real pioneer of our faith, and his name is Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I started looking because everything God says from the beginning was, this whole thing started with faith. It wasn't a bloodline because there was no Jews when Abraham walked around. He was a Jew by faith, the Bible said. 
And because of Abraham's faith, God began to pour promises upon his life. And God began to ask Abraham to do things. In fact, I'm going to read a verse about his son, Isaac, because it's the heritage that his dad passed down to him. Genesis 26, verses 24 and 25. It says, That night the Lord appeared to him, this is Isaac, and he said, I am the God of your father, who? Abraham. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will bless you and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent. Where? There. And there his servants dug a well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father today, Lord. Father, let your people dream again, Lord. Oh, Father, let them dream about what it was like to be endued with power, Lord. Oh, Father, let them dream about what it's like to step across the earth that's beneath their feet and make promises, receive promises, hear the word of the Lord. Father, move in supernatural things that are bigger than any of us, Lord. Bigger and more powerful than any any dream that I could ever have. Bigger than any vision that they could ever have. Father, your vision, Lord. Do it today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Three things that these early pioneers did, and they don't sound like big things until you begin to look at the fact that God just keeps pointing out that they're doing these three things. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, basically, there were other things that they did, but these three things was the focus of what they did during their life. One was they built altars, they dug wells, and they pitched tents. Abraham, let's not get into threefold. <laughs> we had a lot of threefold, fourfold, fivefold, and we were trying to figure out what all the different doctrines that are. They, they really like the term fold. So it's like, is that the fourfold or is that the threefold or was that the fivefold? And we were trying to really sort that out this weekend. Weren't we, Mike? Where are you at, Mike? Yeah, he doesn't want a fourfold message, do you? Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna sort out my notes. Abraham. They all had a kind of a they were all kind of a little better at one or the other. They all did all three things. But Abraham definitely was the altar builder. Abraham built altars in certain places and God directed him to put the altars in that place. In fact, Abraham built an altar, it says in the Bible, four times it mentions an altar that he built in a certain location. And I'm going to help you locate these locations in your life. Because he is the pioneer of faith. He is our example of what God wants our faith to be. You say, well, I thought it was some little hermit that sat in a corner and had candles. And No. Abraham. Abraham is the pioneer of your faith. Get every other ideal out of your mind because God wants you to move like Abraham moved. We've got too many cold churches that we're trying to imitate. We've got too many cold believers that are religious that we're trying to imitate. I'm not bringing a word about a Pharisee today. 
I'm not bringing a word about a high clergy member who has no love for the people around him. I'm not talking about somebody that doesn't cry out for God. I'm talking about Abraham. So get the other mind ones out of your mind. That's not who we're following. We're following men of faith and women of faith. Abraham built altars four different times. Isaac dug a well five times. It doesn't mention... Um, it only mentions Abraham digging one well, but then Isaac continues to go to the wells that Abraham had previously dug. So we know that he dug a bunch of wells because Isaac kept going and reopening them. And then it says that um, Isaac builds one altar and pitches one tent. So he wasn't the uh, he didn't build as many altars or tents. So the altar builder was Abraham. Isaac uh, was the well digger. He dug more wells than the other ones. And then Jacob, it says, pitched a tent in four different locations. And these are very important. First, Abraham, the altar builder. Because whatever Abraham did, his sons uh, continued his heritage. They remembered the locations, and the children of Israel all the way through remembered these locations because they find themselves back at these original locations. God was actually leading Abraham to, to build these altars. Look at Genesis chapter or Genesis chapter 12. It says God specifically and you would think God would mention a lot of other things about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but for some reason these three things just keep recurring in all three of their lives. But God says Genesis chapter 12 verse 6. It says Abram traveled through the land as far as the great tree of Morah. At Shechem. At that time, Canaanites were in. Close my eyes. They were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So God gives him a promise. What's he say? The enemy is living in this land, but he tells Abraham very clearly, he's got the enemy all around him. And they were a pretty strong enemy, okay? Enemy is all around. Okay, it's like you. You've got people all around that are opposed to God. And we want to see God begin to move. You, you, you try to be a missionary full of the Holy Spirit and walking into a land that's 99% Muslim. This is what he was doing. And Abraham, by faith, now I want you to think, don't take this lightly. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. He left a idol-worshiping nation that he was in and why did he leave? Where do I go? God didn't tell him when he left. So how much faith did Abram have? Abram leaves without knowing where he's going. And then as he is gone and out of the, the place that he grew up in his home, the, the place where he was born, then God begins to tell him where to go. But when he first called him out, he didn't tell him where to go. He just said, I'm calling you out of those people. So by faith, the Bible says, Abram followed God. And he began to move. God says, go to this place called Shechem. I want to show you something. So he puts him by this giant tree. This tree is very important because there's several different stories that happen around this tree. And it's just a very famous landmark. But he brings him into this valley and he says, okay, Abraham, Abram, hadn't called him Abraham yet. He said, I will 
give this land to you and your offspring. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills of Bethel. Okay, so he's at Shechem. Now Shechem is a really interesting place because Shechem has this giant tree in the middle of this valley. There's an opening in the middle, and on either side is two really large mountains. Okay? One is Mount Gerizim, and the other is uh, Mount... Um, what's that? Yeah, Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal is the taller of the two mountains. These mountains are very tall. Mount Ebal is a little bit taller. Now, Mount Ebal is a very interesting mountain. Anybody ever heard of Lookout Mountain? And, and there's a lot of different locations in the world that have it, but in the Smoky Mountains, there's a Lookout Mountain, and they claim you can see like five states, right? Is that what they say, five states? Seven? Is it seven states? Okay. Mount Ebal is this tall mountain, but it's located in a very uh, panoramic, um, the, the view is panoramic. You can see the lands that God promised uh, to Abraham. In fact, God began to promise this land to Abraham, and he took him literally up on top of this mountain because Shechem is the tree in between the mountain on either side, and one mountain is Mount Ebal, and Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are two totally different mountains. The one actually has a lot of greenery, Gerizim. has a lot of greenery, it has flowing streams, it looks like a mountain that has life on it. The other mountain is a mountain that looks like it has death on it. In fact, God took the children of Israel to this mountain later, and He said, let's put half of the tribes of Israel on the dead mountain, let's put the other half on the uh, green mountain, and let's uh, let's begin to, to yell out blessings and curses. He said, the blessings will say what the blessing from God will be, and the other mountain will say what the curses of God will be. And you people will stand in the middle, and you will make a choice. Do I want the blessing of God on my life, or do I want the curses of God in my life? Will I be obedient to God, or will I be disobedient to God? And see, this is the first place Jacob was in that that tree. The distance between one mountain and the other is about two football fields. It's a 600-foot wide path in between two mountains. And there is this giant tree right in the middle. Well, this giant tree is the exact same place um, that Jacob buried his idols under that tree. It's the exact same place um, that when Joshua, at the end of his life, began to address the people of Israel, uh, he said, As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Jacob stood under that tree, and that's where they all together gave up their idols, right there. And the mountain of Ebal is even more interesting when you begin to look at it. it. It's a place where they actually mined limestone. It's like a rocky mountain. It's not the rocky mountains, but it's like a very, uh, it's just stones and rocks and it's very rugged and it's very dead looking. And actually there's so many cavernous areas in that mountain, it's actually uh, a cemetery. They actually would take dead bodies and put them in that mountain. So God was making a very clear contrast here to Abraham. I want you to begin to think about this. Abraham, go on top the high mountain there, the dead mountain, and look. Just begin to look. And he said, I will give you all of this land. 
God began to speak. In fact, the Bible says that God preached His gospel in advance to Abraham. It said Abraham learned the gospel beforehand. God began to pour Himself out to Abraham. Why? Because of faith. Abraham just heard God say, leave the people you've grown up around your whole life and follow me. Just like Jesus. Walked in, two fishermen, all they've done their whole life is fish. Follow me. Where are we going? I'm going to make you fishers of men. Men's souls. Now I could see Smith Wigglesworth fixing some pipes. Let's go, Smith. Where are we going? I'm going to make you fishers of men's souls. And see, God requires faith. This is the pattern he begins to establish. So here's here's Abraham, and God would always bring him to this place because God, this is the place God wanted them to dream. You know, he promised 300,000 square miles of promised land. 300,000 square miles. You know what the height of the empire, what they ended up obtaining? I mean, I think it's 299,000. 30,000. They never inherited everything that God wanted them to have. And so I'm just wondering today, this is the first place God takes Abraham to build an altar, and, and God's just telling us, look around. You know, if, if 120 people can be in an upper room, and they can literally turn the world upside down, what can we do? How much land is God promising us? How much of your family is God promising us? How much of your co-workers is God promising us? Because God wants to take us to a high mountain and God wants us to begin to dream what He can do if we will dream. God wants to take us to that mountain. So Abram, Abram at that time, altar is significant. Because the fact that he was an altar builder tells you what kind of heart he had. Because this altar represents self. This explains what Abraham thought about himself. Because an altar is a place you put a sacrifice. God wants you to lay, the Bible says, that we are that sacrifice. He said that God has made us a living sacrifice. And Abraham, the fact that everywhere he went, he built an altar to worship God, tells us what he thinks about God. The fact that he could raise his hands and say, God, I don't have a plan. God, I can't solve my problems. God, you are bigger than I am. Tells you everything you need to know about the heart of Abraham. Everywhere that he was going, he was building an altar to worship God. And let me ask you, it tells you everything you need to know about yourself if you've never came to the point where you can humble yourself and worship God. Your worship will always tell you where you stand with God. I hate to say it that way because it will upset a lot of people, but it does. I'm not saying you have to be extravagant. I'm not saying you have to be loud. But everywhere you go in your life, God requires an altar of worship. God requires us to raise our hands and say, God... It's all about you. God, it's not about me. God, I'm not bigger than you. I don't want to be you. It's all about you, God. 
And Abram would build these altars. The second place he went, Bethel. It says, From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched a tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Now why is God specifically pointing all this out? Now Bethel was a very interesting place. Because Bethel, if you begin to look at the names of the places he's going to, Bethel means house of God. Bethel is literally, in fact, this is the area where Jacob was laying on a, in the middle there on the ground and he began to see a ladder that went into heaven. And he began to see angels ascending and descending and he was basically running from his brother and he was seeking God and God finally gave him a revelation of who he was. Uh, this is also the place after the failure, uh, Abram actually digs this well, or, or builds an altar here. And right after he builds the altar, off, altar there, what do you think Abram, Abram does? He worships and then he fails. Totally fails. The biggest failure probably of Abraham's life, I would say. He ends up uh, getting in the middle of a famine... He gets scared, fearful, not trusting God, and he begins to head to Egypt. So it says, as you begin to read the story there, Abram begins to head to Egypt, kind of loses his trust in God. How do we know that? Because he gets afraid when he gets to Egypt. He feels like the only place he can get water is Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, he begins to become a liar. A pattern that you would see with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they're not trusting God, they start turning to lies. And you begin to see this pattern in there. And God was trying to break them of this. That's why He took them to the wilderness. Because that's the place where you learn to trust God. When you're deprived of things, when you go through difficult things, that's the place where you begin to trust God. So He took him to the wilderness. God drove him there for what reason? There was a famine. The famine drove Abraham to where there was water. God would have provided that water. All right? And you see what's going to happen to my next point here, why the wells. But he runs to Egypt. And after he goes to Egypt and he lies and he fails and he does all that stuff, he's shattered, broken. All right? He doesn't look like a man of God. And where does God bring him back to? Bethel. Brings him right back to the same altar and begins to tell Abram uh, and he begins to reveal himself. So Bethel is a place, and, and, and really get this, the Jews and their teachings really stress that he was between the house of God and a place called Ai. Okay, Ai, the meaning of that place is a pile of ruins. So I want you to start placing these in your life. Shechem. That's where God takes me to a place and He says, do you want to have blessing in your life or do you want to have cursing in your life? Do you want God to bless you or do you want God to not bless you? And God would say, hey, hey, take a look at your life. Take a look at the landscape. Where has your own way ever got you? What has it ever done to your life but ruined it? God says, I want to bless your life. You say, but I don't want to give to God. I don't want to give my life to God. God says, look up on this mountain. 
I have so much for your life. I can do so much with your life if you'll just give your life to me. So he builds an altar there and says, God, I give it all. He goes to Bethel. And God puts him in a place between a pile of ruins and the revelation of God. That's what Bethel was. Bethel was the house of God because God's presence was there. And that's where he revealed himself to God. That's why Jacob uh, was there worshiping because God's presence was there. He never experienced a revelation of God. And see, this is what God does in your life. He gives you a revelation of Him. He says, I know that there's a God. God, I'm serving you. And then all of a sudden, what happens in your life? You begin to doubt. You begin to get a little bit afraid. And you start thinking, just like the children of Israel, how good did I have it when I was in Egypt? This is a pattern all through the Bible. You start serving God. You start getting a revelation of God. Abram actually was had a revelation of God, was serving God, was living for God, went through something really hard. And immediately said, Egypt can help me. And he began to travel to Egypt. He began to go all the way down to Egypt. He began to have problems there. He began lying. He began not trusting God. And God said, wait a minute. Come back to Bethel. And so Abram went back to the place where he built an altar. On one side was ruins. On the other side was the revelation of God. And Abram said, I will serve God. I'm not going to doubt him. I'm going to trust him. And so the second altar that he built was him coming back to the presence of God and saying, I will live for God. And that place was a very important place because remember when the children of Israel uh, came into the promised land, guess what places they ran into first? the places where Abraham had built these altars. So God, in fact, the Jews actually teach um, that Abraham was interceding for them because he knew they'd have trouble there at Ai. Take it as you will. But he, he did know, the Bible does clearly say he knew things in advance. There were certain things that he knew. But you see patterns with the children of Israel going to these same places. And there are shadows of that. The third place he went was Hebron. It says down in verse 18, So Abraham moved his tents again and went to live near the great tree at Mamre. Mamre, Mamre, I don't even know how you pronounce that, honestly. At Hebron. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Now Hebron is an interesting place. Uh, Hebron means fellowship. So you see him progressing with each altar. The first altar is, look what I'm going to do with your life. You know, look at all the land that I promised you. Look at all the things. And remember, this is a guy that had no children. You know, he was 75 when he first went on this journey. He had no children. He had no, you know, no nation whatsoever. But God's saying, I will make you a great nation. Just imagine a 75-year-old man with no child. And really, I mean, how does, how does he believe that? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's a great faith for him to move with God. And then God takes him to this place and says, Look, Abraham, you will have, Abram, you will have all this land. And he's like, well, wait a minute. These mighty Canaanite people are here. How's that going to happen? He never did that. And then there's a famine. And think how hard that famine would have really been. We read famine. Ah, no big deal. He's dying. Okay, he literally has to make a quick decision within days because if he doesn't go ahead to Egypt, he may not have the resources to make it. So 
And these are the decisions you're going to be faced with in your life. And then he gets to Hebron. And as he's in Hebron, he built an altar to the Lord. And this is the place of fellowship. In fact, they believe this is the location where he entertained angels unaware. That means he became, he, he came into intimate friendship and fellowship with God at this place. So God began to not only talk to him, God would visit him. Like he didn't know God was visiting him, but they were actually eating with him. God was like, hey, you know, uh, I'm getting ready to do something uh, at Sodom. I just want to let you know that I, I'm getting ready to destroy those because of their wickedness. And he's like, well, wait a minute, God. Will you destroy it if? And he starts negotiating with God. I mean, this guy loved God, worshiped God, praised God, and now he's in deep fellowship with God. It's showing you the order of faith. Showing you that you have to build the altar everywhere you go. It's like, God, I'm going to worship you no matter what happens in my life. And God is actually leading you. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm going through something really hard. God really doesn't expect worship then. You know, He expected Abram to worship Him through a famine. Like He's about to die and He's worshiping God. So God brings Him back to this place. The next thing that God begins to do. And Isaac is our example of a well digger. And uh, it says in uh, chapter 26... Verses 17 to 25, it says, So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar. He settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham. The Philistines had stopped them up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names that his father Abraham had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with him. They said, the water is ours. So he named the well Esek, which means they disputed with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one also. He named that one Sitna. And he moved on and dug another well. And no one quarreled over it, so he named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. I will bless you. I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Then he pitched his tent, and there the servants dug a well. These wells are really important. Get a hold of this. First of all, you have to understand the symbolism of water in the Bible. What's the symbol of water in the Bible? The Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. Now what does water do in our society? Just begin to think about it. Let's say that your body does not have water for a little while. What begins to happen? Every single fiber of your body begins to cry out for a drop. It fights each other. It's fighting for water and dehydration sets in and it's not going to be very long. You just die. Three days probably. You know, you might be able to go longer. 
But dehydration will completely shut you down. Now spiritualize these. Imagine living your life without the Holy Spirit. That's all we have. Jesus says, I am going away and I will send you a comforter. I will send you a helper. I will endue you with His power. Because I go away, but I will send Him and it's basically better for you that He comes. It's the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it will be like a water flowing out of our belly. Mighty rivers of water will flow out of our belly. What else does water do? Water, how would we ever become clean without water? You ever had not had water for a few days? What's uh, one of the number one priorities besides drinking water? Like, i got to find a way to clean myself up. Say, man, I've got so many problems. How will I ever get clean? And it's a real problem without the Holy Spirit in your life. The Bible talks about a process called sanctification. And the Bible says it doesn't matter how bad you are, doesn't matter what you've done, the Bible says the Spirit will come upon you and He'll begin to sanctify you. He'll begin to break the power of the enemy in your life. He'll break every stronghold. He'll begin to clean you with the, He'll wash you with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And, and there's nothing that you're going through in this world. You say, well, this is a hopeless case. You don't understand this is a hopeless case. The Bible says when the Holy Spirit is there, I can remember sitting in a revival in Pensacola, Florida. And I, somehow or another, and I don't know how it happened, me and a guy in the church just began fellowshipping. We just, I mean, we just had a, instantly had a connection. And we just were talking about the Lord and just having such great fellowship. I'd only known him for five minutes. He says, hey, what are you doing right now? I said, well, i got a bunch of kids here with me. He goes, join me. I said, said, what do you you mean? He says, join me in the baptismal tank. I'm the lead elder of the church. I said, join you in the baptismal tank? He goes, you're not going to believe what you see. I got in the baptismal tank. And I remember the first person that walked down the steps was a little prostitute. You want to know what the washing of the Holy Spirit will do when the power of the Holy Spirit's in the place? She was a little bitty and she said, you know, she just began weeping and she said, when I was a little girl, I was molested. And she said that that led to drugs. And that led to the life that I got involved in. She was a prostitute on the street where the church was, DeSoto Avenue. And later an officer would tell me that there were more prostitutes on DeSoto Avenue than anywhere in the city. And almost every one of those prostitutes went to that church. The power of the washing of the Holy Spirit. And she got in that tank and began to testify, began to cry, and she just began to shake. I mean, she began to shake so... Just, just trembling with joy and peace and love. And I mean, she trembled so much. You ever try to get a, uh, when you don't have a good handle on a, on a fish and you try to get it in the bolt? She wasn't very big, but I had a really hard time getting her out of the water because she was shaking with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I could just do nothing but cry. And one after another, one after another, drug addicts were coming in there saying, I'm free from I'm free from the addiction. Prostitutes saying, God has made me whole. There's no more pain in my heart. And one after another, hundreds of people baptizing in that water. 
These wells mean something. These wells mean a lot. There goes the mob. But think about this. Food. How do you eat without it? Like, is it possible what we're getting from the Holy Spirit and our messages are not what God wants us to have? Maybe we're, maybe uh, we're drinking milk and God wants us to have filet mignon. Maybe God wants us to have steak. Maybe God wants us to grow up. Maybe God wants us to mature at a rate that, that we never knew we could mature. Maybe God wants us to do great things and we're a new convert. You say, well, that can't possibly happen. Won't you read about Stephen? Won't you read about Philip? They just came into the church as Gentiles. They begin serving tables. And the next thing you know, they're preaching the gospel and thousands are saved. And Stephen was the first martyr of the church. God wants to feed us great things, greater things than I could ever dream up in my little mind. And when the power of this Holy Spirit comes into this place, then people get, begin to apply themselves. You say, well, won't you do that? Why don't you bring that kind of message? Why don't you do it? Why don't you go home and get full of the Holy Spirit? Why don't you come in here and prophesy to these people and tell them to live? Why don't you speak a word to somebody who's hurting because the Holy Spirit spoke it to you? Why don't we have a word of wisdom? Why don't we have a word of knowledge? Why are we not free to dance in the Spirit? Why are we not doing that? We need to look at ourselves like that evangelical conference because they were the best in the world. Nobody was after the lost like that group was after the lost. Do you know all these Pentecostal crazy people that won 70 million people? Do you know they were Baptists, Episcopalians? you know they were Methodists? There were no Pentecostals. They came together and they said, we're tired of it, we're hungry, we want a moving of the Holy Spirit. We're tired of being in cold churches. They said we're tired of mainline cold churches and we want to do like the early church did. And they got hungry and they didn't wait for a pastor to get hungry. They got hungry themselves and they began to cry. I, I watched John Kilpatrick. He'd lay those keys on the table and he said, I'm not leaving until you pour out your spirit. I'm not leaving until you pour out your spirit. And for hours and hours and hours and hours, he would lay there and he would pray for the Spirit of God to move. That baptismal tank that I sat in would have never happened unless they got hungry for the Holy Spirit. Unless somebody came in and began to open the wells up that we know are there. Washing clothes. You ever wash clothes without water? The Bible said He's coming for a church that's without spot and without wrinkle. An unblemished church. How are we going to do that if the power of the Holy Spirit's not in our life? If holiness is not at the forefront of our lives. If I don't wake up in the morning and say, God, let me glorify You. God, let me pour, pour Your Spirit upon me and change me and transform me. we got too many people that are happy with their lives right now. Well, I'm better than most. I'm pretty good. God, I want to be the best I can be for you. God, I want your spirit to be all over me. God, I'm tired of having a dirty garment. Wash me. Make my garments clean. Make me ready. That's one thing about the end times church is they're ready for the coming of the Lord. Are you ready? Are you doing everything you can? Are you full of this anointing oil? Don't say yes. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I want more. I want more. I want more. 
fact, the people kept saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and God said, stop. That's, that's judgment to you. He said that. Guys, we gotta get hungry again. We gotta pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not gonna make it at 12. I'm sorry. I tried so hard. I tried so hard. Four minutes. So God takes him to a place. Now, Gerar is an interesting place. Isaac goes to a place called Gerar, and guess what Gerar is? Gerar is the farthest you can go without being in Egypt. It's like I'm running so far, I'm so far away from God, I'm as far as I can be and still not be in Egypt. It's the southernmost spot that you can go and still not be in Egypt. So here is Isaac in that place. He fell just like his dad. He ran to Egypt just like his dad, and the place was dry just like his dad, and he was hungry for water. And God told his dad the same thing he told his son. He said, begin to dig a well in the desert. Now I want want you to imagine how ridiculous that is to dig a well in the desert. I want you to imagine how hard that is. I'm thirsty, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to dig a well. I'm going to begin digging it in a desert. And God said, dig the well in the desert. God has called you in this community. It's dry. The world that we live in is wicked. The world that we live in is ridiculously hateful of God. And God says, apply yourself. Everybody wants something easy. Everybody wants to watch TBN and get their daily dose of the Holy Ghost. But God is saying, I'm going to require some effort here. I'm going to require you to dig like you've never dug before. Go deeper and go deeper and go deeper. Why? Because it's there. How do I know it's there? Because Abraham found it. Abraham found it. If Smith Wigglesworth dug and he put the work in and he dug and he dug and he dug and the power of the Holy Spirit came on his life, I know it's there. If the early church did it, I know it's there. He looked around and he said, my dad was in this same place and my dad dug and my dad found water. But see, here's what happened. Why were they filled? It was an act of war. To fill in somebody else's well in the Middle East was an act of war. The Philistine, why would you, think about it. Why would you fill in a well that has water? Abraham dug it because it was a symbol in that day that I'm taking ownership of this land. And to fill it back in, was to say you have no ownership in this land. So the fact that you're going to plant yourself in your community, in your family, and I'm going to dig a well, you're serving the enemy notice. The enemy began to taunt him. He called one of the uh, wells actually hatred because they hated him. One of them, I mean, every well that he dug, they'd say, no, that's ours. So what did he do? He gave up and he's like, they're not very nice to me. I'm a Christian. He moved to the next one. And he fought him. Fought him. He kept on digging. Finally, water. And we said, no, can't have that one either. And then finally, he dug a well. Just think about it. Just think about it. You say, well, we've got the Holy Spirit in this place. Not like they did. We don't have it like they did. 
Read your Bibles. We don't have it like they did. And God's saying it's there. You know it's there. But it's been filled in. Now what's it been filled with? Dirt. The earth. The Bible is very clear in this symbol. The earth means the flesh. That means I've got so much in my heart that's holding back what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So many things in me. So what's the digging for? God's trying to change me. He said, well, God, do something. God, do something. God, pour out revival. God, pour out revival. God's saying, dirt. There's so many things in church that's full of the flesh of man. So full of us. And God's saying He wants to transform us. He wants to start scooping out all that ugliness that's in us. It's in me. I say us, I don't want to offend you. But it's in me. Every person who's ever great for God, He took them into a wilderness and changed them. And God wants to take us to a place, that whole process of crying out to God, that whole process of digging wells of life and wells of water. Guys, can you imagine how different of a lifestyle your family would have if they had indoor plumbing? Do you know how much that changed the world? Do you know how much your family is affected when you don't have it? Spiritually, that's what you don't have. That's why kids are dying. That's why families are backsliding. That's why communities are full of drugs. God wants us to dig wells. And the last thing, before I close, really important. They lived in tents. How is that important? Where did they build the tents? Everywhere God's presence was. They built a tent. And when God's presence would move, what did they do? They moved the tent where God was going. Then they moved the tent again. Then they moved the tent again. Now hear me clearly. I'm not telling you to live in a tent. But what I'm saying is the Bible frequently refers to our flesh, our body that we live in as a tent. And God wants His glory. He wants you to be full of His glory. He wants you to have an ear. He says, my sheep know the voice of the shepherd. They listen to no other. You say, but we follow Pastor Rod. And now we follow Pastor Chad. You better change that. Because you're not hearing the Holy Spirit. Bible says, and you say, well, this is a consistent pattern. The children of Israel moved by day, how? It was a cloud. And God said, that's my presence. Wherever that goes, go with it. By night, flame of fire. And what God's saying is, if we're going to be a church... It's going to reach the world. If you're even going to be a Christian who's going to live a holy life, a sanctified life, if you're even going to be somebody that doesn't, you want to walk around dry or you want to be pouring out the Holy Spirit to everybody you see. And God says if we want to be that kind of people, we got to learn to move with God. You say, but couldn't we get a committee to do it? Church, we're going to have to start praying like we've never prayed before.
God's going to call us to fast like we've never fasted before. This is God's Word, not my Word. I didn't sit here and think this Word up. This is God saying, Chad, get your stuff right. Get it right. Because I'll be honest with you, there were times, and some of you young people, Aaron, you, you probably remember we'd cry out week after week after week, late into the night. We'd have prayer meetings for seven, eight, nine hours. I would make them sit there in complete silence. I said, you're going to hear the clock tick. I said, but you're going to learn how to reach the Holy Spirit. You'll learn how to hear from the Holy Spirit. And those kids began to prophesy. Those kids began to see things they never thought they would see before. They began to do things that, that we never thought the Holy Spirit could do with us. And we were constantly in His presence and I was constantly crying out. And God's saying, Chad, you don't do that anymore. And I'm asking you, do you do that? Some of you in here have never, you've never stood on that mountain of blessings and curses. And you've never said, God, I'm going to build an altar here and I'm going to lay my body on it. And I'm going to give my life completely to you. If that's you, there is no Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will come into your heart when you lay yourself on that altar and say, you are the Lord of my life. If that's you today, I'm going to close. If that's you today and you've never given your heart to the Lord, your life is cursings. God is cursing, allowing curses in your life. I don't want that life. God doesn't want that life. God said, I didn't die for you to have that life. And God is going to take you that mountain and He's going to say, look around. What can I do with your life if you give your life to me? And God's asking you a question today. You say, well, I don't have to make a decision. You'll make a decision today when you walk out of this room. God will hold you accountable for that decision. You either chose blessings in your life, you either chose God, or you chose against God. He said, you are either for me or against me. You can't be one or the other. You can't be in the middle. You're either for me or you're against me. And then God's also going to take you to the place where He's going to hold you accountable. He says, wait until you're endued with power. I send you the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water. There's one mightier than I who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. God's going to hold you accountable today too. Are you hungry for more of His Spirit? And maybe I'm not going to say you have to stay up here such and such amount of time, but today is a good time to start that journey. When you go home, especially, is a good time to start that journey. It's time to start crying out, church. It's time to start seeking God like we never had before. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. If you've never given your heart to the Lord, I want to pray with you today. And if you are hungry for more of the Holy Spirit, I will pray for you. I'll lay hands on you. I believe God wants to pour the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the physical evidence of what? Say it loud. A little louder. I'm not ashamed of that. God said, don't forbid them to speak in tongues. Don't despise it. We want it to be orderly, right? We don't want people to walk in and think we're mad. But Paul said, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. He said, especially prophecy. He said, go after it with all your heart. Why? Because we're not going to be happy with the results unless we do. So begin to seek the Lord today if you can. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I dismiss your people, Lord. Father, I pray that you would pour out a hunger for your presence like they've never had before, Lord. 